You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. Great. Uh, So I apologize to listeners, first of all, for the hiatus again in the podcast. Uh, I've been doing a lot of travel recently. I actually just got back from uh, almost two weeks in South Korea. Um, And as our listeners probably know, this was a very interesting time to visit South Korea. So this podcast is going to be uh, primarily about South Korea. Uh, It is not going to be a North Korea podcast. Uh, Believe it or not, it is possible to have an enriching discussion about South Korea's role in Asia at large without being drawn into North Korea. But of course, we will talk a bit about U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's uh, recent visit to Pyongyang. Um, But first, before we get into any of that, uh, I do want to take a break and do something unusual on the podcast. As you usually know, we like to get right into our business. Uh, But I want to take a brief minute to actually uh, tell our podcast listeners about a new product uh, that we have with The Diplomat that might interest them. And when I say product, I don't mean something that we're selling to you. Uh, It is a free uh, new editorial uh, product that we have. Uh, It's a newsletter that I'm writing. It's called the uh, Asia-Pacific Risk Update. Maybe I should have called it the Indo-Pacific risk update given that we are releasing it in 2018 but hey we're the diplomat we do the asia pacific still um but this newsletter um effectively it's coming out bi-weekly right now and it's sort of um my take on the top geopolitical issues that you should be paying attention to across asia's major regions uh so if you're somebody that's primarily interested in one asian sub-region let's say you're a southeast asianist or a, or a northeast asianist or a china expert or an india watcher and you want to have a better picture of uh, how things kind of interconnect in asia because asia is growing more connected uh, than ever, uh, or if you simply just want to know what you know what's going on in uh, in Central Asia or, or uh, Oceania, I recommend you check out the newsletter. It's sort of my attempt to kind of pull pull together the the big picture in Asia and just uh, help help sift through um, and uh, and separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Um, so you can subscribe to that newsletter at diplomat.substack.com. Uh, we're using a, a new mail provider, Substack. They've been very helpful to us. Uh, but I do hope you'll subscribe to that. Uh, and and of course, um, because this is a new product and it's sort of experimental, I'm totally open to receiving feedback. Uh, and actually, a lot of uh, subscribers have written in already with very helpful feedback about the newsletter. So if you have any feedback on that, I'd be very happy to hear it. Um, so with that said, uh, Prashant, let's get into today's discussion. Um, so it's funny because, uh, you know, I'm from India and I was in Korea. And while I was there, South Korean President Moon Jae-in actually uh, went to India for a visit with uh, Prime Minister Modi. Uh, and I know the Moon administration was a little bit uh, caught off guard by the timing because uh, they also had to account for the fact that Pompeo was going to Pyongyang. But South Korea uh, managed to demonstrate that it was a uh, Indo-Pacific-minded country. Uh, Moon went to India. Uh, he's no longer there, but he had a very productive visit with uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi there, uh, emphasizing the variety variety of uh, economic security and political linkages between the two countries, uh, even people to people linkages. Um, they they signed a range of important agreements. Um, but Prashant, where I'm taking this really isn't to talk to you about the South Korea India relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a very interesting piece that I think merits um, a close close discussion today, which is uh, you looked at South Korea's, uh, at least the Moon government's, um, new southern strategy uh, in the context of Southeast Asia, but certainly it has implications in South Asia as well. Uh, so I was hoping uh, to turn it over to you. Uh, you can maybe tell us a bit about what the new southern strategy is for South Korea and how you sort of see it um, playing out geopolitically uh, in South and Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a good place to start, Ankit, because uh, the as you framed it in the beginning, um, I think a lot of this, the discussion has been sort of a, a question of 
you know, how much of South Korea's foreign policy under the Moon government um, has been dominated by North Korea relative to other, you know, Asia Pacific or Indo Pacific concerns, right? Um, and I think that's where the new Southern policy comes in. I mean, there's a, there's any number of names, policies, initiatives. There's there, there's a new Northern policy. There's a, there's a Southern policy. Um, but I do think um, you know the Moon government is trying to demonstrate that even though it does have this North Korea challenge, there you know there is plenty of other things that, that South Korea wants to do. And a lot of this is just focused on South Korea as a middle power and and sort of engaging other middle powers and significant countries in the region. So that's kind of how you frame the the sort of new Southern uh, policy. Um, part of that is you know, Southeast Asia. Um, and Moon, after his visit to India, has, has moved on to Singapore, where he's trying to engage Singapore, but also Southeast Asia and ASEAN. Um, and the India visit, too, I, I think, is a demonstration that you know South Korea wants to engage major powers in, in, in the Asia-Pacific. Um, and I guess with both these legs of the visits, I mean, there have been a focus on you know particular deliverables, like when he was in India, announcing that you know there was this commitment to 15 50 billion dollars of trade by 2030 um, but you know I think for both legs of the visit it really is does come down to this question of how much of bandwidth does South Korea have in its foreign policy um, you know relative to what it has on on uh, with respect to North Korea and I think in that vein um, it was interesting that this uh, visit or sets of visits came alongside uh, Pompeo's visit. Um, and, you know, since you were in, in, in South Korea recently and, and you follow North Korea very closely, I mean, I think we should probably move that discussion there and then come back. Um, what were your impressions when you were in uh, South Korea about how South Korea is walking this balance, right, between the North Korea challenge, but also these broader foreign policy challenges? Like we heard in the Shangri-La dialogue when you and I were there, I mean, there were folks raising questions, right? Can South Korea walk and chew gum? Uh, at the same time, and and how is this going to play out? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, those are those are great questions. Um, and the first thing I'll say is that my visit to South Korea, actually, believe it or not, uh, was about a lot of other things apart from North Korea. Uh, I had mm -hmm. a lot of very interesting conversations uh, with uh, South Korean uh, sort of policy elites, uh, opinion makers, uh, even even a few um, expat analysts uh, who live there and know the country very well. Just about how South Korea is uh, envisaging its its place in Asia's shifting geopolitical order uh, between the United States and China, the shifting nature of the alliance, um, the uh, implication of uh, America first for South uh, for South Korea, and I also had a lot of conversations about uh, you know more granular and difficult historical issues like the issue of the comfort women. Uh, dispute with Japan and the uh, the Tokto territorial dispute and even the EC naming issue dispute. Um, so this was actually a really wide ranging trip. Um, and you know, I also spoke with um, South Korean civil society organizations. Uh, you know, young South Koreans, old South Koreans, liberal South Koreans, conservative South Koreans. So I feel like I I walked away with a pretty helpful picture of um, just where several segments of South Korean. Um, society are in thinking about a lot of these foreign policy issues. Obviously, I can't claim, you know, that I walked away with a, an understanding of, you know, what, quote unquote, South Koreans think, because South Korea is a vibrant democracy and people disagree there um, just as much in any other country. So there are um, a range of perspectives. Uh, obviously, the Moon administration has its own view um, of, um, of where things are going and should go. Um, but otherwise, you know, there are a, um, a range of issues. Um, so on the on the issue that you just brought up of uh, walking and chewing gum, I think that's very much uh, something that people in South Korea um, are are aware of, uh, at least at least uh, among the uh, foreign policy elite. 
Yes, it's true that uh, there is a lot of optimism and interest right now in the inter-Korean process. Uh, and certainly, I think a lot of people sense that Moon here has an opportunity that is quite different from what uh, his predecessors, Kim Dae-jung and uh, No Mu-yeon, had in 2000 and 2007, respectively. Uh, so there is a lot of interest in in making that the primary issue. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, if you, if you talk to other South Koreans, I mean, what's on their minds is... Uh, you know, the country's economic vitality and uh, and future. And for that, uh, you know, very much, uh, you know, you, you hear something like the new Southern policy and you think of something like, you know, Taiwan's new southbound policy, looking for opportunity in the vibrant, uh, demographically strong Southeast Asian and South Asian region. So I think in South, uh, in South Korea, similarly, uh, to maintain the country's vitality, um, participating in regional free trade arrangements, uh, increasing trade volumes, um, and, and really reaching out to uh, South and Southeast Asia is, I think, still thought of as a, uh, a way to um, sustain economic vitality. And that is an important issue for Koreans. I think a lot of people do not feel particularly positive about the direction of the South Korean economy. And, uh, you know, we often talk about uh, demographic decline in Japan. That is a very popular topic in the Western press and talking about um, Asian uh, demographic issues. But South Korea has a worse demographic problem. They have a lower fertility rate than Japan. Um, and it's very much an issue that the country is wrangling with now, too. So they're uh, an aging society again and thinking about, you know, how, how that can be managed, um, the role that immigration from Southeast Asia, for instance, will play in South Korea. Um, so those are some of the issues that, uh, you know, I found to be quite interesting in, uh, in some mm -hmm. of the conversations I had there. And uh, just just to sort of elaborate a little bit on on a point that you made earlier, I mean, I I, I do think it it is interesting to uh, acknowledge and and talk about the fact that there are a diverse set of viewpoints in in all of these countries, right? In the right. Indo-Pacific that we talk about, and and South Korea is an example. I think one of the things, and and uh, listeners, I I would encourage you to to sort of read through our our new newsletter because there are a lot of good insights and analysis there. Um, but I think one of the insights that you brought up there, Ankit, and we can talk about it here too, is um, you know views within South Korea about the future of the U.S.-South Korea alliance, right? Mm -hmm. In the context of um, the younger generation, in the context of the changing context and climate of inter-Korean relations, you know, what what is the relevance of the U.S.-South uh, Korea alliance, depending on the various scenarios and how those play out? I mean, what were some of the insights that you picked up on that during your trip? Oh man, this could be this could be a whole podcast. To be honest, um, the alliance is in a very um, it's in a very interesting place, and it's in a precarious place. Um, and uh, if I was someone that supported the alliance, and I am, I would be worried. And I did walk away from South Korea a little worried about about the alliance, but I also felt, you know, a small tinge of hope in that you know you do talk to a lot of South Koreans, and maybe this is just uh, my sample size. But when I go to D.C. and I talk to people about the U.S. Korea alliance, um, the general view that I walk away with is that. Uh, American thinking about alliances, and especially the alliance with South Korea, uh, is a lot more rigid, and people are a lot more resistant to change. In South Korea right now, um, and here I'm really referring to, um, I guess, partisans of the Moon government, uh, and, and at least a couple people uh, in, in the administration, uh, they're more open to revisiting the nature of the alliance, uh, right? So there was that controversial article in Foreign Affairs in May before right. the summit written by um, Moon's advisor, Moon Chung-in, uh, which 
uh, you know, made the case that it would be very difficult to justify a U.S. troop presence in South Korea if there is a peace treaty, which is a common view in South Korea. It's been a longstanding view that a lot of Americans have been aware of, is that um, a consequence of peace with North Korea is that the U.S.-Korea alliance, uh, as it exists today, would no longer be able to persist. But what I found is that even in the South Korean left, even among the progressives, um, that is something that people are not very seriously entertaining. People are invested in the alliance, um, and they are thinking more carefully about what it would mean for South Korea to revisit the alliance with the United States and sort of re-architect it in a way designed to help it become something more like an Indo-Pacific balancer, um, a little bit more like the U.S.-Japan alliance. And they're thinking about issues like um, the transfer of operational control. I won't get into that on the podcast because it's kind of a in-the-weeds topic related to um, primarily South Korean military procurement. But uh, if listeners are interested in this, I encourage you to read more about it. It's called the uh, OPCON transfer issue. It's about making uh, the um, wartime command of uh, forces on the Korean peninsula more equitable. The South Korean left certainly sees it as a sovereignty issue. Um, and here I think, you know, domestic politics are quite relevant. Um, in, um, you know, I stayed in a couple of hotels when I was in Seoul and continuously I would see protesters outside and the protesters were primarily um, conservative South Koreans. Uh, and they all carried American flags, uh, you know, a Korean flag in one hand and an American flag in the other, chanting in support of the alliance, um, in support of uh, Park Geun-hye in a lot of cases, the uh, imprisoned uh, and disgraced former president, Moon's predecessor. Um, but the thing that I really also walked away with is that even if you talk to right-leaning South Koreans uh, who maybe sympathized with uh, a more conservative government's agenda, um, a lot of these people are aware that uh, the South Korean conservatives are effectively um, electorally in a very bad place right now, right? It's, um, you look at South Korea, you see a conservative um, polity that's in disarray, and it's kind of the same thing with the liberals and the left in Japan where the LDP dominates. Uh, so you have a, a little bit of parallelism there. Um, but basically what people worry about, obviously, is that you have sort of um, polarization right now uh, among certain parts of the South Korean left, um, you know, perhaps the uh, Moon Chung-in school of uh, alliance thinking, and obviously the Donald Trump school of alliance thinking. Uh, <laughs> and you put those forces together and you allow them to sort of play out. Uh, and I think a lot of people worry that the the forces here end up pulling the alliance apart. Um, and we have, you know, burden-sharing talks underway right now. The special measures agreement talks are undergoing in the alliance. And that's an area for tension. Donald Trump has not taken an interest in that, uh, which I think is a good thing. Um, but at any minute, he could uh, learn of the fact that, you know, we're talking to South Korea about dollars and cents. Um, and actually, uh, you know, another thing I'll say is that when I was there, um, these conversations were actually particularly charged because the um, Camp Humphreys, the uh, largest U.S. overseas naval base at Pyeongtaek, which uh, replaces the Yongsan garrison, which was the U.S. Um, military's garrison in the, in the heart of Seoul, in a northern Seoul, uh, opened. And South Korea paid 90% of the tab for this base, right? So it's it's really a a, um, a crystallization of, of just how um, skewed, in some ways, the burden-sharing commitment is and how it's completely disparate from how Trump sees it. Uh, so actually, you know, this is um, a somewhat politically and emotionally charged issue, too. I mean, South Koreans do feel disrespected on one level, I think, at least uh, some of them that I talked to, um, by the way Trump speaks about the alliance. So, yeah, you know, I'm worried about the alliance, but it is encouraging to see that um, a lot of Koreans, uh, even on the left, are willing to uh, are open to the idea of um, of thinking things through for a potential future in which, you know, peace with North Korea does take hold and there is a peace treaty. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I, I do think, you know, the, the drivers that you mentioned, um, you know, whether it's domestic politics or popular perceptions are, are, are things that you look at, you know, U.S. alliances 
throughout the region, you, you do see those as major drivers. I, I think the other thing that's been interesting is, um, you know, the Moon government's sense of uh, threat perceptions, right? Um, so when you see um, alliances and the perception of threat with respect to North Korea, it does seem like uh, the Moon government has quite a relatively optimistic view of where the North Koreans are and the North Korean threat. And that also creates expectations that need to be managed in the context of the alliance as well, right? Um, I think you, you noted in, um, in the newsletter as well, one of your observations was that, um, you know, in, with respect to that, um, depending on whether that optimism may be borne out or not, um, it is something that we'll have to compare with reality, right, in terms of where the North Koreans uh, develop with respect to, to the nuclear issue. And I think the, the other thing that you mentioned that, that's really important is um, this notion of troop withdrawals and troop presence. That's something that has a regional, uh, a, a regional sort of sense, a regional implications as well, right? So if you look at U.S. troop presence in the region, whenever you have major U.S. troop withdrawals or tro talk of that, right, whether it's after the Vietnam War or after the end of the Cold War, um, you know, that generates all kinds of regional anxieties about, you know, what does it say about, you know, U.S. commitment or regional stability or, you know, where, who else is going to pick up the slack, you know, if, if U.S. troops are withdrawn. Um, so I think there's always this hype uh, and sense of things. But if you look at the broad historical trajectory, what has happened is you have that sense of hype and then what you have is a, a troop drawdown or, or reduction mm -hmm. um, after that period of hype, as opposed to a full-scale withdrawal. So, to your point, I, I do think it is important to, you know, as we talk about, you know, the alliance is, is in good shape, is in bad shape. There are sort of various degrees of of moderation in between, and I suspect that, you know, we're in those periods right now where I think folks are wondering. You know what does this look like in terms of the U.S. South Korea alliance going forward? So. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really important point. Um, and I know we're not really in the business of doing policy recommendations on the podcast, but you know, if if you know there are listeners listening to this in Washington, I'd say that one of the things that the United States needs to be ready for, um, and I know that maybe in the Trump era this is actually slightly easier, uh, is that the alliance doesn't have to look like it has for the past uh, a decade plus, right? Uh, uh -huh. You know, we forget that in the early 1990s, the U.S. and North Korea. Um, completely, you know, rethought the alliance in the context of the post-Cold War environment. They canceled the team spirit exercise to make way for diplomacy with North Korea. Today, there's a similar thing, right? Like, there was a lot of hand-wringing in D.C. about Trump's sort of unilateral decision to cancel the upcoming uh, Ulchi Freedom Guardian exercise, the computerized command post uh, exercise, which he called a very provocative war game. Okay, that's, uh, you know, frankly... Uh, offensive to the South Korean and American soldiers that participate in the defensive exercise. But the point I'm trying to make is that, um, you know, it, we all hope that, you know, this peace process with North Korea, um, you know, leaving denuclearization aside, um, the inter-Korean peace effort uh, does succeed um, and, uh, and the Korean people can make something out of this. And if that happens, I think the alliance will have to change, right? So mm -hmm. it doesn't have to completely disappear overnight. But the point you made about moderation is important because, you know, we need to ask questions like, do, do the U.S. and South Korea, um, I think they do need to exercise to maintain uh, readiness, but do they need to have, you know, Key Resolve Full Eagle and then UFG in August every year? And is that the kind of alliance calendar that we need to maintain? Or can it be broken up into um, smaller exercises, more uh, low-profile exercises that will be less, quote-unquote, provocative to North Korea? Um, does the U.S. need to necessarily have 28,500 troops on the Korean Peninsula, or could it have less? Uh, it could have less, right? I mean, those mm -hmm. those issues are, I think, where the conversation 
will probably have to go. Um, I mean, you know, the alternative scenario is that this whole process with North Korea collapses and we go back to fire and fury and and brinkmanship, in which case the alliance discussion, I think, becomes very different, um, even uh, even in South Korea. Uh, but right now, I think that this is a, um, a, a seriously uh, urgent issue that um, I think needs to be thought about a little bit more flexibly in Washington. Right. And I, I guess one of the variables um, in terms of how you think about the alliance and U.S.-South Korea relations more generally, I mean, it's, it is, is the North Korea issue. And, and you mentioned, you know, Pompeo's visit. And, uh, you know, what, we've seen a lot of commentary about uh, the degree to which it was a failure or whether this was something that was expected following the, the hype that came out of the summit. Um, what were the impressions that you picked up uh, in, in South Korea and, and your impressions about what Pompeo trip, uh, how how the Pompeo trip fared, but also what does that trip kind of say about what we could see from the U.S. and North Korea going forward in terms of this process, but also the potential endgame? Yeah, no, this was a little bit sad for me because I actually just left South Korea right as Pompeo left North Korea. And I was at the airport, mm-hmm. actually, when I saw the North Korean foreign ministry statement, um, right. you know, calling him out for his gangster-like attitude. And then I boarded my 13-hour flight, not <laughs> knowing what I'd come back to on the other side. There was no internet on the flight. Uh, but I had a lot of time to think about that North Korean foreign ministry statement uh, on the on the long flight. Um, look, I mean, on one hand, you know, this is unexpected. But I think the bigger thing for me is that I think the U.S. just doesn't like the Singapore declaration that Trump signed on to, or is at least not interested in reading the text and seeing what Trump and Kim Jong-un signed to. Because before, uh, you know, Pompeo went to Pyongyang this time, he, um, or maybe this was a State Department spokesperson speaking on his behalf, but said that he was going there to realize the final fully verified denuclearization of North Korea, comma, as agreed to by Chairman Kim in Singapore. Which is, I mean, it's a completely made up thing. Uh, First of all, Chairman Kim did not agree to that in Singapore. He agreed to work towards the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, uh, which is a a very different thing. The uh, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and denuclearization of North Korea mean different things. And North um, North Korea has never signed on to any kind of statement that implies that it would unilaterally disarm. And the North Koreans have been trying to tell the Americans this uh, all throughout this year. And... You know, I read, I try to read the North Korean paper every day. It's probably not good for my uh, mental health, but I do it anyways. Um, and look, the North Koreans have put up multiple statements on May 16th when John Bolton was talking about the Libya model being the only model for North Korea. You know, Kim Kegwon, the vice foreign minister um, or the vice minister of foreign affairs, said that, um, you know, we won't, um, as long as unilateralism is what you're looking for, uh, we can't have the summit. And then, of course, Trump cancels the summit later and he grovels and they managed to make it work. But, um, you know, that's the same thing with this Pompeo visit. What came up, um, what came out uh, afterwards in that foreign ministry statement is that unfortunately the U.S. came to the table um, not looking to talk to us in the spirit of the Singapore Declaration, but only continuing to demand for denuclearization, calling for CVID declaration and verification, all of which run counter to the spirit of the Singapore summit meeting and talks, right? That's very important. Think back to that press conference that Pompeo had right after the Singapore summit when he berated a reporter for asking him uh, where the words verification and irreversible were in the Singapore declaration. And Pompeo said that, oh, you know, don't worry about it. The North Koreans understand that the word complete implies verifiable and irreversible, but the North Koreans are very clear that it does not. So what's the takeaway from all this? Uh, The simple takeaway is that 
the U.S., uh, if it is going to have productive talks with North Korea, productive, uh, and here by productive, I mean talks that focus on things like, you know, capping North Korean ICBM production, fissile material production. I mean, fissile material production would be a total pipe dream at this point, um, so that'd be great. But to get to any of that, right, to get to, uh, to just get past the hump, even to get, um, even to get the POW uh, MIA remains out of North Korea, um, the U.S. will have to stop insisting on unilateral denuclearization. So if Pompeo goes next time, to Pyongyang, um, the terms for that conversation need to focus around complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, uh, which for North Korea, uh, if I can uh, offer my view on what they think of that, uh, I think they really mean something like global nuclear disarmament, right? Like something mm-hmm. like what yep. a NPT nuclear state signs on to with uh, Article 6 of the NPT, mm-hmm. which says that if you're a nuclear state, you're going to vie for a world without nuclear weapons. So that's basically what North Korea has agreed to with the Singapore Declaration. Pompeo doesn't like it. Trump doesn't like it. John Bolton definitely doesn't like it. Um, and that's what leads me to think that this process is probably doomed for failure. Uh, but I really hope I'm wrong about that because... I think the U.S. could get a lot out of this if it simply uh, got over the unilateral disarmament uh, component. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if anything, um, what Pompeo's trip uh, and, and kind of the aftermath of the summit has shown us is that um, I think there were some folks who were saying, well, you know, the summit, the statement, you know, th- at least something happened. At least they had an agreement. At least they were talking. And maybe, you know, we shouldn't sweat so much the small stuff. Um, and, you know, there, there were folks like us who were saying, well, you know, you should really focus on the specifics, though. I mean, there are these commitments matter and North Korea will kind of hold you to them. And sure enough, you know, that's exactly what has happened. Right. I mean, the the North Koreans are referencing what was agreed. Um, and if you make certain concessions or language seems diluted, um, there's risks to that, even if you're making a compromise to hold a summit and to just issue a statement. Um, and I think, you know, that that's kind of what we're seeing. And we're also kind of seeing a, a dynamic where uh, the U.S. is trying to portray the North Koreans as the unreasonable party and the North Koreans are coming back and saying, well, no, you're, you know, you really you are the unreasonable party. And I, I suspect we'll be <laughs> we'll be seeing some of that playing out. I, I guess the big question that, you know, to my mind, it keeps coming back to me is, I mean, where are we relative to where we were before? Right. Is this something that's kind of back to square one? in terms of where we were with the North Korea challenge, or potentially is this, you know, worse, where we've kind of taken one step forward and two steps backwards, right? Because if you think to what the Trump administration was doing before, we were initially headed to war with North Korea or potential conflict, but there was this toughening sanctions regime that was getting us to the point of negotiations. And the fact that the summit came so quickly um, and the statement was drafted so quickly and the momentum is kind of dissipating on sanctions, and we're at a point right now where, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if you know it, it's it's sort of something that's doomed to failure or whether we should be hopeful about where this goes forward. But it does seem that you know this idea that Trump is a masterful negotiator and and bargainer, um, this is a big test of that, and I am not sure that. This so far has been working in his favor. So. Oh, you're too polite. But yeah, I think you're onto something there. <laughs> um, no, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about um, and, uh, you know, debating with a few people because, uh, you know, a lot of people do make the point that, you know, talks are better than war. And of course they are. Uh, right. It's um, we're definitely in a better place now than we were uh, in December 2017 when we were reading reports about bloody nose uh, strikes and uh, what have you. Um but, you know, the worry, of course, is that um, 
Trump thinks that Kim Jong-un has betrayed him and he thinks that when he met Kim in Singapore and they became honorable friends or whatever, that Kim told him he would denuclearize. You know, he signed a piece of paper that says complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Trump probably thinks that means that North Korea is going to give up its nukes. It doesn't mean that. So when it doesn't happen, Trump says... Kim double-crossed me. You know, he did this with Harley Davidson. He lashed out at them on Twitter. So does he lash out at Kim Jong-un and say, uh, all right, Mr. Kim, your time is over. You know, I'm coming for you. And does that start a nuclear war? I mean, that sounds like a ridiculous scenario, but it is kind of the extreme end of how this thing could completely blow up in everyone's faces. Um, I'm not willing to call Pompeo's trip actually a total failure because they, you know, they're still talking. And the North Korean statement was very clear that, you know, as long as we build on the spirit that Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump fostered in Singapore, we can continue to talk. Uh, so they're willing to talk. There's working groups level talks uh, set up right now. That said, I'm not optimistic. The North Koreans are very good at slow rolling that process. Um, but, you know, the thing you said about sanctions is, I think, also really valid. Uh, maximum pressure is 100% dead right now. Um, Ch Chinese have totally eased up on implementation. I mean, why would they uh, when North Korea is behaving in a, frankly, reasonable manner, right? The reasonableness question is also interesting because... North Korea does have a point that if the U.S. doesn't like what the Singapore Declaration says, they shouldn't have signed it, right? If, if Trump went to Singapore and that was the agreement and it wasn't acceptable to him or his administration, then it's entirely reasonable. You know, my policy preferences aside, it's entirely reasonable for a U.S. president to shape his foreign policy based on what he actually wants. So if he doesn't want the Singapore Declaration, then he shouldn't sign it. Um, and also going back further to March, uh, you know, if... If Trump had sort of said, no, I'm not going to accept Kim Jong-un's invitation for a summit right now because our sanctions pressure is really starting to uh, accelerate and might actually accomplish something, I, you know, I'm not sold on that argument, but it's an argument that I think you can make quite reasonably, um, then that also leads to a different outcome, I think. Uh, but Kim Jong-un managed to, you know, get Trump to take the bait on the summit get a really weak statement out of the Singapore summit. Um, and now if the process collapses and we enter a conflict, obviously that backfires for him. Uh, but I think he he thinks that he can get away with it. And now I think the next step, and this, you know, this is something I again talked about in Seoul, is how we get to sanctions relief. Um, and I don't mean total relief. I mean probably roll back to where we were at the end of 2016, which means rolling back the three resolutions from last year, which um, were really unprecedented in scope in that they uh, restrict about 90% of North Korea's exports, which uh, does affect the regime's bottom line in a significant way. So, you know, we might see China and Russia begin to support that as long as North Korea keeps on playing ball uh, in the inter-Korean um, sense and with the United States. Uh, so really, Kim Jong-un got a pretty good deal out of this. Um, and it does look like the U.S. is in a bit of a pickle right now uh, unless they choose to give up denuclearization. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd agree with that. All right. Well, yeah, so I guess we did end up talking a lot about North Korea. So maybe uh, we, we, <laughs> we failed the uh, task that I set out at the beginning, which was to talk about South Korea without being drawn into North Korea. But I guess these are the times we're in right now in, uh, in July 2018. Uh, but Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me. Good to be with you. Right. Uh, for our listeners, um, you know the usual spiel. If you uh, haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. Um, and if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't left us a rating on iTunes or Google Play, please do so too. That really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.